Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beck Esme. So Jenny, what are we going to talk about today? So one of our PGY3s, Michael Coffer, gave an excellent talk on electrolyte abnormalities. Now, we've covered some of these in the past, so this week I thought we could focus on hypokalemia. Excellent. Not the uh, sexy topic as hyponatremia, which we've covered, and we've covered hyper-K, but it's still critically important, and we see it quite a bit. So you want to start with a little bit of a case? Yeah, it's not quite as sexy, but I have seen interesting cases. So Absolutely. So here we go. We've got a 20-year-old male with no significant past medical history, and he comes into the ER due to sudden-onset generalized weakness. He reports that several hours prior to the onset of the weakness, he had an argument with his girlfriend. And now he notes that his legs seem to be really weak and his arms are also weak. So the legs are a little bit more affected than the arms. When you examine him, you notice that he's well appearing. He's a young guy. He's got normal vital signs and a normal finger stick. But he has significant weakness of all of his muscle groups in his arms and his legs with more pronounced weakness in the lower extremities. Additionally, you see that he has hyporeflexia globally of all his deep tendon reflexes. That's a pretty cool case. So sudden onset flaccid paralysis. So we already talked about the fact that this is going to be hypokalemia because that's what we're talking about today. But let's start with a quick differential of flaccid paralysis. So what goes through your head when you see a patient like this? So the first thing I think about always is Guillain-Barre, which can be precipitated by any number of things, including a viral infection. And then, of course, going back to one of our prior podcasts, remember you've got the tick paralysis that could be there. So so make sure you do a thorough skin exam on any of these patients to see if there could be a tick lingering somewhere. Consider spinal cord lesions and trauma. And if you're dealing with a baby, remember botulism toxin. And then for patients of any age, there could be any number of toxic envenomations that you could see presenting with global weakness. And then, of course, last but not least, your periodic paralysis syndrome, such as thyrotoxic periodic paralysis. And in this case, in the case of our patient, hypokalemic periodic paralysis. So in this patient, I think you're going to grab some labs, including electrolytes and probably a TSH as well as an EKG. And of course, you're performing a thorough examination, a lot of which you've already told us. You know, the neuro exam is the focus here. So in this particular patient, you discover that he's got a potassium level of 1.7, which is pretty low. Normal, of course, is going to be somewhere in the 3.5 to 4.5 range. And the severity of the symptoms produced by that hypokalemia can often be proportional to the degree of hypokalemia, but it can also be influenced with the speed with which that hypokalemia develops. This is sort of an ongoing theme. We see this in hyper-K. We see it in hyponatremia. So usually weakness isn't going to be seen until you fall below somewhere around two and a half milliequivalents per liter. The weakness seen in hypokalemia usually involves the lower extremities first, and then it's progressive in its severity. When it's really bad, you can have total paralysis. When that potassium is low enough, you can also see things like muscle weakness, and that can eventually cause paralysis of the respiratory muscles and lead to respiratory failure and even death. Other symptoms you might see include muscle cramps, rhabdo, and myoglobinuria. Because of these last two, you may want to include a CK and a UA in your workup. The patient also could have developed an ileus, could have nausea and vomiting, or abdominal distension. 
All right, so let's talk about that EKG. We mentioned it earlier as part of our workup. So the characteristic EKG findings in hypokalemia are going to include things like ST segment depression, decreased amplitude of the T waves. You may see a U wave, which is a deflection that comes after the T wave, and that's particularly going to be present in V4 through V6. You can also see prolongation of the QT interval. Additionally, there are many different dysrhythmias that patients with hypokalemia can present with. So PACs, PVCs, sinus bradycardia, paroxysmal atrial or junctional tachycardia, AV blocks, and even VTAC or VFib. Well, that sounds pretty scary. Swami, when you see a patient and you get this bad hypokalemia level, do you just throw pads on them right away? Or do you wait for something specific on the EKG before you get all kind of worked up? I think I'm going to look for something significant on the EKG as far as some significant changes before I'm slapping on the pads. If the QTC is really long or they're having frequent PVCs, I probably would put the pads on. I think that makes sense, although you're unlikely to need to use them. That VTAC VFib usually comes with pretty severe hypokalemia, and I've never seen someone go into one of those lethal dysrhythmias. Otherwise, having the patient on a monitor and maybe the crash cart nearby is probably going to be just fine. Okay. So in addition to your labs and your EKG, you should take a few minutes to consider why this patient is hypokalemic. It usually isn't just a lone thing. In the case we have here, we're dealing with a patient with hypokalemic periodic paralysis, which is either the result of a genetic disorder or is secondary usually to thyrotoxic periodic paralysis. But there are many other causes of hypokalemia. Probably the most common cause we see is medications, namely thiazide diuretics, insulin, and bronchodilators. The diuretics cause potassium wasting in the urine. And then if you remember back to your biochemistry, increased insulin causes hypokalemia by leading to the uptake of potassium into the cells. Similarly, beta agonists such as albuterol or over-the-counter sympathomimetics can cause increased potassium uptake into the cells. In fact, the one patient I did see with hypokalemic periodic paralysis had also been overusing his albuterol inhaler recently, so that could have contributed to his presentation. That's really interesting, especially that overuse of albuterol. You'll see patients, obviously we see patients who come in a little bit shaky, but I have seen patients who come in with a little bit of weakness and we check their potassium and they're a little bit on the low side. So remember that albuterol will push the potassium into cells. Now, other more run-of-the-mill causes of hypokalemia are due to increased potassium losses, so GI losses like diarrhea or increased urinary losses like what we see sometimes in renal tubular acidosis. So we discovered hypokalemia, we thought about possible causes, and we're getting the patient worked up. So let's start treatment. Well, when treating hypokalemia, I think it's pretty easy what you have to do. You have to give them potassium. So, yeah. For, well, yeah, right? I mean, just makes good sense here. So the thing we have to keep in mind is how much potassium we have to give these patients. So for every 0.3 milliequivalents potassium drop below normal, that's going to correlate to about a 100 milliequivalent total body deficit. So you got to give quite a bit of potassium to get a guy who's got like a 1.7 or a 1.8 back up into the normal range. You're not going to be able to correct that in the emergency department. They're going to have to be admitted. And I'll tell you that when they have those significant hypokalemias below like that two number, I'm definitely going to be putting them in a step-down unit, or I've even seen these guys go to the ICU as well. Now, in patients with mild hypokalemia, repletion can be done with oral potassium. As long as the patient's gut works, they're not vomiting, you can give them oral K. Usually, this is going to be potassium chloride, and we'll typically give somewhere around 40 to 60 milliequivalents every four to six hours, and you have to monitor them as you're correcting this potassium. But remember, if the patient's making urine, you're not going to cause a hyper-K state by simply giving 40 to 60 milliequivalents. They'll pee out the extra stuff. 
So if the patient has potassium levels that are less than the three milliequivalents per liter, or they're having some major symptoms or obviously life-threatening ECG changes, we're usually giving potassium supplementation via the IV. Here we're going to start with 10 to 20 milliequivalents per hour of potassium chloride. Now keep in mind that when potassium is infused peripherally, it can be painful or even cause a phlebitis. So if you need to give it faster than 20 milliequivalents per hour, central access is usually best. And you have to look at your local protocols. A lot of places won't let you run in potassium more than 10 to 20 milliequivalents per hour because of the risk of these dysrhythmias that hyperkalemia can cause or infusions of potassium can cause. So you have to be a little bit careful here, but in patients who have really significant hypokalemia and it needs to be fixed fast, IV is the way to do it. Now, a couple of things to remember, patients who are hypokalemic are very likely to also be hypomagnesemic. These things go together. And if you don't replete the magnesium, they're never going to get intracellular potassium repletion since magnesium is needed to transport potassium into cells. Checking a spot magnesium level, unfortunately, isn't that helpful because the levels fluctuate pretty rapidly. As for treatment of periodic hypokalemia, it's kind of interesting because from what I understand of this disease, and I don't think we understand everything here, it's from shifts in potassium, not total body potassium loss. That's why these symptoms can come on very suddenly. So giving a lot of supplemental potassium can actually lead to driving the potassium level too high as that shift corrects itself. Instead, you can sometimes give small doses of beta blockers that's going to bring the potassium out of the cells. And sometimes if it's not that severe, you can just wait. Now, of course, that means that you know it's hypokalemic periodic paralysis, which you're not always going to know. It's a very funny disease, and I don't think we have a full grasp on it, but every once in a while, a patient will come in and tell you that they have this syndrome, and then the treatment's a little bit more streamlined. All right, Jenny, let's get some take-home points on hypok. Absolutely. So first, hypokalemia has a wide variety of presentations ranging from generalized weakness to paralysis to cardiac dysrhythmias or even cardiac arrest. Second, when you discover hypokalemia, be sure to check an EKG. Think about underlying causes of hypokalemia because it's also not really usually a solo event. And then third, treat with oral potassium supplementation of 40 to 60 milliequivalents orally every four to six hours for mild hypokalemia or 10 to 20 milliequivalents per hour IV for severe or symptomatic hypokalemia. All right, those are great. And remember again that when the patient's potassium level is really low, you don't simply want to stick them in a floor bed. That's not the best place for them. All right, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net where we've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks. And see you all next week.